Who are the top 10 richest pastors in the world? Well, here are a few names that you probably will recognize. Joel Osteen, $40 million. Benny Hen, $42 million. T.D. Jakes, $150 million. And who do you think is number one? Number one. Kenneth Copeland, $760 million. And that wasn't bad enough. There are a few names that you probably do not know. There's a guy who goes around calling himself Daddy Go in Nigeria, $40 million. There's a man, Herbert Angel, $60 million in Zimbabwe. And there's a guy named Papa Ayo, Nigeria, $120 million. Now, what do all of these people have in common? Well, one, they're all false teachers. They're all prosperity preachers, and they've all corrupted the gospel for their own gain. And the sad thing is that this corruption began in our own land and now has been exported to these third world countries. It's one thing, not good, but one thing to exploit rich Americans. It's another thing to exploit poor Africans, telling them that you can become like rich Americans if you only give to my ministry. This is sad, sick, horrible. The question is, what would the apostles, if they were alive today, say to such things? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess. They essentially already told us. Actually, in the little book of Jude, you're going to see that the book is so poignant, so accurate, so consistent with the characters that we see today, that it almost seems like Jude was written by John MacArthur or something. It's so recent, so relevant, so true and applicable. So please open your Bibles to Jude, Jude chapter 1. We're going to, for context, go back to verse 3, and we'll end in verse 11. Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into luridness and deny our only Lord and God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they do know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, this passage is extremely difficult for me to preach on because there are so many fascinating rabbit holes in the passage. There are 
literally 11 different variants in verse 6 or verse 5. Um, there's this fascinating question about who these angels that send are in verse 6. And then there's that scene in verse 9, which shows up in the assumption of Moses, a pseudepigrapher work, about Michael, the archangel, disputing with the devil. All of these things I want to explore in great detail, and who knows? I might explore them in great details, but I'm going to try to show some restraint. Please pray for me. To try not to do that tonight, because we won't get anywhere if I do. And also, I think if we do that, we'll be so interested on these little leaflets that we'll completely miss the forest and the main point, the overarching point, that Jude is trying to get at, these false teachers. In fact, I was tipped off on this main point by actually looking at the New King James Version. I usually use the ESV, but New King James is my second favorite, sometimes my first. And in this little section from verses 5 through 11 has this heading that says, Old and New Apostates. And I think they're absolutely onto something. That's what this section's all about, Old and and new apostates, taking examples of the past and seeing how they're relevant to the situation of Jude's day, and we shall see that this is the exact situation that we find ourselves in. So we're going to try to do is going to fly over all of the trees to get the main picture, and then at a later time we'll explore each tree at a time. So let's look at verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's out of the ESV. So Jude begins this passage with wanting to remind them of something that they had previously known. And he points to three examples. He points to the wilderness generation of the Israelites. He points to these, this fascinating case of angels having sinned at some point in the past. And he points to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then immediately afterwards, he points to the to the dispute of Michael the archangel and the devil. And then at the very end, toward the end of this little section, he provides three more examples, and he compares them to Cain, Balaam, and Korah. So if you're counting, in total, in this few little verses, he brings up six examples from the scripture, and one fascinating example of Michael the archangel disputing with the devil, which is a commentary on the Bible that's actually not found in your Bible. So in total, that's seven examples, and all of these examples are not new to the audience. But rather, he is setting them before them as by way of reminder. He wants to remind them of things that they had already previously known. And the scripture is full of examples of this, where the Bible tries to remind you, not necessarily teach you, it's already taught you once, and now it wants to remind you of a truth that it already told you. Here's some examples of the Bible reminding you about its own truth. 2 Peter 1.12 says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter was not ashamed to remind you of things that you already knew and things that you were established in. In Paul's uh, conclusion in the book of Romans, Romans 15.15, Paul says this, But on some points I have written very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace of God that's been given to me. He wrote to remind them of truths that they already knew. Even Jesus says this to the church in Revelation 3.3. 3. He says, remember then what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If you are not, wake up, I will come as a thief and you will not know what hour I come against you. Jesus says, I want to remind you 
I want you to remember. Paul says, I want you to remember. Peter, I want you to remember. Even the prophets of old, Malachi 4.4. Malachi says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb and all Israel. The apostles, Jesus, the prophets, even God in the Ten Commandments. You remember the only commandment that says, remember? People often say, the one we always forget. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So why does the Bible constantly remind us of things that we already know? Well, for one thing, you don't know what you don't do. You really don't. You can say you know, but you don't know what you don't do. You can say, yeah, 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 I got it. It's good, I understand. But really, the question is, if you really understand, then why aren't you doing it? Because once you come to realize that something is in your best interest, then you will do it if you're truly convinced of that truth. Right? Someone said you can drink gasoline, it'll kill you. You drink water, and it'll save you. You would not show me that you're convinced as you drink the gasoline. I would think that you actually need more convincing because you continue to guzzle down gasoline thinking that's going to help you. Well, it's the same way with us. We don't really fully understand what we don't do or what we don't apply. We'll put it differently. You still have room to grow as you have room to apply. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not only hearers deceiving yourselves. Yeah, 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 it's not the right response to God's word. Yes, 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 I need this. I need to obey is, in fact, the right response. So one of the reasons that we need to be reminded so often of things that we already know is because we all have room to grow. Let's give it some examples. How many of us think that we don't need to hear another sermon about prayer? We got it. We are prayer warriors. We're the best. We look at Daniel, and he prays three times a day, and we say, ha, we pray four more consistently. We look at Jesus. He would go and slip away in the middle of the night. Where's Jesus? He's out there praying. Ha, we do that nightly. I doubt it. I doubt many of us, as we look at the Bible, see these things and are convicted and think, wow, I still have room to grow in these areas. Back to Daniel. Daniel was so holy. He's a man. Nonetheless, he is a man. But he was a man by God's spirit were so holy that when they tried to get him, they audited all his books, they watched them, they talked to his family, they couldn't find anything on this man. So they had to find him and attack him somehow in his own prayer life. Yikes. We followed you all day. Could we get you on something? I think you'd get me on some things. We have room to grow. One other example about areas that we can grow. We looked at prayer. Okay, we all need room to grow in prayer. What about giving? There's an example in 2 Corinthians 8 of these Macedonian believers these Macedonian believers, it describes them as extremely poor. I don't know all of your finances, but I suspect none of you will be described as extremely poor. You all have cars. So do I. We're not extremely poor. And yet it says that these extremely poor people overflowed in the wealth of generosity. That's kind of these poor people, wealth. They were wealthy in generosity. How wealthy? It says they gave according to their means. That's good. Then it says they gave beyond their means. They gave when it hurt. It gave when it made no sense. It gave when people said, you're crazy. Stop doing it. You need that money. And they still gave. And they actually begged. They said, please let us give more to this thing. You can say, well, that was just some God special call on them. Actually, if you continue on the passage, it says, you excel in this grace as well. Excel in all things, including the grace of giving. The point is, we still have room to grow. The Bible is often convicting to us because we have room to grow. So that's why the Bible reminds us. 
because we get a little deeper. We get a little bit more understanding. We decide to give a little decimal more, maybe a couple cents, maybe more modest. Get 15 more cents at a time. Eventually it adds up. We pray a little bit more. We still have areas to grow. That's why the Bible reminds us. It helps us to meditate on these truths. A second reason that we often need reminder is not just because we need to continue to apply these truths, but it's also because we often forget. We remember something one day and we forget it the other. We get fired up about a sermon, about a topic, and then that motivation wanes over time. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a good thing either. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's sometimes just a human thing. We're not meant to live on yesterday's bread. You know what that's called? It's called fasting. Not very pleasant. Today's bread is good, but don't try to run the marathon on yesterday's bread. You need today's bread to deal with today's trouble and today's trials. I'll give you an example. We all have cars out here. When's the last time you put gas in your car? Something tells me, hopefully it wasn't today. Something tells me maybe a couple days, a week. Maybe some of you guys really have those big gas tanks on drive very often, maybe two weeks. Something tells me it probably wasn't months ago, probably wasn't six months ago. Why? Because your tank is not designed to run on gas for six months. We could make it that way. You'd be pulling a giant gas tank behind your vehicle. It'd be horrible. You wouldn't want that, right? Your tank is only designed a week or two weeks of gas. Well, so too, God has designed us that way, right? We're designed with a certain amount of fuel, and we need constant refueling. It's not a bad thing, right? Hopefully, guys aren't too upset about having to fuel up every week or two. It's just part of the ritual. And so too, we need fueling on a regular basis by way of reminder. What are those fueling? Well, the Lord's Day is a great fueling station that God has designed. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, to fuel up. What about daily devotion? You know, greasing the engine, cleaning off the dirt on your car, doing all those things, daily prayer, these kind of things, Wednesday night. All of these things are fueling stations, and they are good. And every once in a while, you're driving, and you've been greasing up. Everything looks nice, right? And all of a sudden, you see that little light. It says, check engine. You go, what's going on? That happens to us all. And so it happened to these people, right? There's these times where everything is seeming to go right, and all of a sudden, things break down that we have forgotten, and we need a tune-up. We need the brother or sister to come beside us and, and give us that word of encouragement or that word of conviction or something like that. And in this case, in this case, we have uh, the apostle Jude giving that way of reminder. He says, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this. So these people have forgotten. They need a tune-up. They need to be reminded of some truths. So what are the truths that they need to be reminded of? Well, he gives uh, three examples. He gives the example of the wilderness generation. This example uh, is, there's a little bit of debate of whether or not this refers to the incident with the golden calf, and then he had the Levites kill 3,000, he sent a plague and killed another 20,000, so 23,000 in all, and that was their unbelief. The other possibility, this refers to the entire wilderness generation, how they rebelled, they listened to the 10 spies, really the entire time they were out there they were rebelling, but they listened to the 10 spies. So the ten spies die, and then God says, okay, since you don't believe me, since you think these, these giants are too strong for even my power, then you're all going to die out here. Not exactly sure which one, but it, really, it's the whole scene of these Jews out in the wilderness. They were initially saved, right? But then they did not believe, and so God killed them all in the wilderness. But he was smart. He, was, he wanted to protect his own name, so he let those under 20 years old survive and go into the promised land. 
So that's the first example that he goes over. The, the second example is these angels who have sinned. Now, uh, again, we're not going to get stuck here, but there is a question of what are the possibilities of these angels have sinned. Well, there are really only two possibilities, only two groups of angels that have ever sinned, or, or maybe just one. Uh, the first group would be the original angels that have sinned. Uh, this would be Satan, would be one of them, and the fallen angels, most likely a third of the angels, or at least a large amount of these angels, such that they're actually battling with God's angels. We see that in Revelation chapter 12. So it could be referring to those angels, or it could be referring to Genesis chapter 6, where it says the Son of God went into the daughters of men. Either one of those possibilities, he brings up the example of the sinning angels. Then he goes into the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, who lived very sexually immoral lives, such that they were judged and destroyed, and they serve as an example of what's going to come upon the ungodly. Namely, what happened to the Sodomites? They were wiped out, and so the wicked will be wiped out. And the Sodomites do not cease to exist, but rather they are now in Hades suffering the fires of Hades. And so too the wicked, when they die, they will suffer the fires of Hades. And if they're the last generation, they'll be wiped out, resurrected, and suffer the eternal flames of hell. So these are the three examples that Jude puts before his audience that he wants to remind them of these things even though they have begun to forget them. Now, what does he mean that they had forgot them? Did they suddenly forget the, the wilderness generation or the Sodomites or these angels that sinned? Probably not. It's pretty hard to forget that intellectually, but it seems that they forgot the significance of these things. They started to be swayed by the, uh, the false teachers, by their new innovations. Remember, Jude says that they are to contend for the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. And it seems that they started to entertain and to listen to the false teachers and began to think, well, maybe this antinomian way is, in fact, the right way. Maybe there's something to this heresy that is true. And they started to drift away from the example, from the teaching of the scriptures. Now, let's stop here and think about this. We need to guard ourselves from doing that. Once we identify someone as a heretic, that's when we turn off the channel. That's when we close the book, shut it away. And stop saying, I'm going to pull in some good sources out of this. Or at least we view this as what it is, heretical writing that we're merely critiquing and not trying to gain uh, insight from. Which reminds me of when I was an early Christian and I was in my house and I thought, well, I want to find the Christian channel. And there was a Christian channel. Yay, Christian channel on television, on cable. Trinity Broadcast Network, TBN. Wonderful. Look, John Hagee telling me that the Jews got saved a different way. That... Christians got saved, and hearing about prosperity and health and wealth, and I thought this was good. And I called my dad and told him about that, and he very kindly said, those are heretics. You need to turn off the channel. It's very dangerous stuff, and it was very, very helpful to me. Well, that's exactly what Jude is saying. Jude is saying, don't listen to the heretics. Rather, go back to the scriptures. Remember, what does the life of godliness look, godlessness, or godlessness look like? It looks like the wilderness generation. It doesn't look like the good life. It looks like dying out in the wilderness. Who envies that generation? We vilify them, right? Nobody wants to be, nobody says, oh, it must have been such a good time with the golden calf. That's the life to live. No, because we know the end of the story. That they, out, they died out there. We look at the spies and don't think, we really should have sided with the ten instead of the two. No, we think we should have been with Caleb and Joshua. They're the ones who were right. 
They're the ones who ultimately entered the promised land. It was better for them. Well, same thing with these angels. Whatever they were, these were the angels of Genesis 6 who lusted after women and fell into this gross sin, or or these are the original angels. Who envies them? Why would you join Satan? Kind of reminds me of I um, met a Satanist once. I was having a conversation with a Satanist, and I was just trying to understand where he was coming from. And I said, this is crazy. If Satan exists, why would you side with the loser? just doesn't make sense. If Satan exists, so does God exist. Why would you side with him? Well, that's Jude's point. He's saying, remember, remind, I'm trying to remind you, I'm trying to show you that this is the way of death. This is the way of destruction. It doesn't end well with these people. And I actually do this with my kids. I do this all the time. I look at drug addicts and say, that's what drugs do. That's not what I want. It's, this is not the good life, right? Well, he's saying that look at these biblical examples and recognize that this isn't the good life. And then here's what he wants you to do. He wants you to draw the application and say, if it wasn't good for them, it won't be good for you either. If it didn't go well with them, it won't go well with you. And that's what successful people do. They recognize patterns and recognize, hmm, I'm actually probably not much different than them. If I do the same things they do, I'll fail just like they failed. This is also why biographies of successful people sell well, because the opposite is true. If I imitate successful people, maybe I can rub off on some of their successful ways. Sometimes this is kind of humorous and silly. Like he woke up at 5 o'clock, so I have to wake up at 5 o'clock because somehow waking up at 5 o'clock is the key to success. It might be, but not necessarily. But that's what he's saying. He's saying look at these examples and to learn from them. Draw the application. And so what is the application that he is trying to get us to see? Well, he's trying to get us to see that just as there was a group of apostates, at least two of these groups are apostates specifically. The Israelites are apostates, and the angels are apostates. And then the Sodomites are not quite apostates, but they're heavily sexually immoral people. He's saying, these people of yesterday are back with a vengeance. And they have shown themselves with these modern false prophets. And that's what he's pointing to in verse 8. Look at verse 8. So he gives you the ancient example, and now let's look at the modern example. Verse 8. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh. They reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. So you see the triads, just triads all over the place. Another three description, right? He describes them as defiles of the flesh, rejectors of authority, and speakers of evil against the dignitaries. Or if you have the ESV, it says the glorious ones. So what is a dreamer? Well, some people have suggested a dreamer was someone who slept too much and sinned at night. It is possible to sin at night, but that's not what's going on here. Clearly, he's not talking about their dream life. This word actually only shows up here in one other place, and that other place is in the book of Acts, where it says that they will dream dreams. This refers to visionary experiences. Behold, these are the original charismatics. Here they are. Even in the early church, there were crazy charismatics who went around and tried to use visionary experiences and extra-biblical revelation in order to justify their heresy. Kind of like the ESV there, it says they rely on their dreams. They say, this is my authority. This is why you should listen to me, because I have these visionary experiences. I have these dreams. God told me it was okay for me to do this in my little community. They rely on their dreams, but what are we supposed to do? Rely on the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. And what's amazing is this. This is the actual charismatic church. He's saying that be be careful about the crazy charismatic to the church that actually had the gifts is what I'm getting at. 
The church that had the gifts still had these people trying to abuse those very gifts and to trick people and to get them to believe their heresy based on their visionary experiences. They rely on dreams. Be careful. These same, these same false prophets relying on their dreams exist to this very day. That's how they justify their heresy. They can't find it in the Bible, or at least not very easily, without twisting and all those kind of things. So they claim these extra-biblical experiences. They're crazy charismatics. The next description of them is they defile the flesh. That is to be sexually immoral. The examples that were given is possibly the angels in verse 6 and then the sodomites. And yes, the sodomites' sin was homosexuality. There's no question about that. People try to do everything, jump around, make it hospitality on that. Yes, it was very inhospitable to try to brutally sexually assault people who come to your town. But that's, let's not pretend that was really what's going on there. That was part of it. These people were homosexual. And it was gross and evil sin, and that's why the text says they went after strange flesh. Homosexuality is a great sin. Now, whether these people were homosexual, who knows? But they certainly were perverted, and they certainly defiled the flesh. They were certainly sexually immoral people who justified their sexual immorality based on their dreams. That this was okay for them. We have a society saying you were born this way. It's okay. Same love. All these twisting things. None of them are true. We don't rely on dreams. We don't rely on a person's feelings or this person's testimony or anything else. We rely on the word of God. It never changes. Very clear. Sodomite, sodomy is evil. And not just that, though. See, it doesn't say homosexuality. It says defiling the flesh. It just expands to all things. This expands to your telephone use, pornography, HBO. Just because it's PG-13 doesn't mean that God says it's okay for you. God says, do not let sexual immorality be named among you. So it doesn't matter what society says. It doesn't matter if Sports Illustrated is technically not a porn magazine. If there's a swimsuit magazine, it's wrong. It's evil. You shouldn't be doing it. Defiling of the flesh. They justify their evil based on extra-biblical, non-biblical realities. They are perverts. They are evil. We should not be like them. The next description of these people, they reject authority. They are rebels. They are people who say, I am free. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to be sexually free. I'm going to be free with my finances. You can't tell me what to do. I'm not going to join the church, whatever it is. They're rejectors of authority. They are rebels. Most likely here, they're rebelling against God and his apostles and his authority established in the church. This is the sign of a false believer, someone who rejects the authority of God. And the last description is very interesting. They speak evil of the dignitaries, or in the ESV it says the glorious ones. This almost certainly refers to angels. They are blasphemers of angels. Now, it seems at first that this would probably refer to, especially the description glorious ones, would probably refer to glorious, holy angels. They blaspheme holy angels. And yet, if you look at the example in verse 9, it's not an example of people blaspheming Michael the archangel, but rather blaspheming the devil, a fallen angel. Let's look at that. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So the example given is Michael, the archangel, not doing something blasphemous, slanderous, something going on with the devil. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting is, again, remember, these are basically the crazy charismatics of that day is the crazy charismatic of this day, and nothing is new under the sun. So what's interesting is this, one of the ways... As I think about this and think, hmm, is anyone doing this today? 
especially these prosperity gospel people, are any of these people doing these things today? Well, they certainly are defiles of the flesh. They certainly are dreamers. They certainly reject authority of God's word. And what about the speaking evil of glorious ones? Do they do that? Well, sure enough, they do. You could find videos of Kenneth Copeland and all the rest saying all kinds of crazy things about the devil, about him being a worm. They bind him over here, bind him over there. He crawls on his belly, all this crazy stuff. They speak to him all kinds of things that they have no business speaking. The Bible never tells you to be cursing the devil and going around commanding him and telling him that you're his puppet or he's your puppet or anything of the sort. It says, resist the devil, submit to God, and he will flee. So I think most likely what's going on here is that they are boasting about their charismatic spiritual powers by binding demons and casting demons out and doing all these things about demons, but they don't know what they're talking about. They're, in fact, just speaking slanderous things against the devil that are simply not true. And look at verse 10. That's the connection. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. What don't they know about? They know nothing about demons. The Bible is actually quite silent about demons. It's a few things. But not enough for you to be casting out demons and telling him to be crawling on his belly and binding demons over here and binding demons over there. It just doesn't say that, and we should not be doing that. So they speak evil about things they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, just like the brute beasts, and these things, they corrupt themselves. So they don't have true knowledge because they reject the only way they have true knowledge is God's word. And the things that they do know naturally, these, these instinctive things, that's what they're running on, right? If you often deal with, again, crazy charismatics, they often run off their own instinct, whatever they think. This is why they often bless you. Well, God wants to bless you, so, so yeah, you'll be blessed, Prosperity, health, all these kind of things. They're running on things that they don't know what they're talking about. And the few things they do know, like God wants to bless you, they corrupt it. God does want to bless you, and he is blessing you. One of the ways he blesses you is says, trust me, I'm working all things for your good. Your glorified body is coming down the pipeline. It's not now. You're kidding yourself if you think this is a glorified body. It isn't. You're kidding yourself if you think you'll never get sick. You do get sick. That's why you have aspirin and cold medication and you're covered. If you don't, you might just be coughing a lot because we get sick. Often trying to speak about things that they don't understand, and even things they do understand, they corrupt it. And by, the thing, by these things, they destroy themselves. And that's exactly opposite of what Michael the archangel did. When Michael the archangel was contending with the devil, and that's why I like the New King James here, he did not dare bring against him a reviling accusation. So here's real quick what was going on there. In the Old Testament, that it has this interesting scene about Moses. I don't know if you guys remember, but Moses, he dies on a mountain, and it says that nobody knows where he was buried. In fact, God like brings him on a mountain, and it specifically says in the Masoretic text, that the, the Hebrew Bible, he buried him. Who's the he? God. So it says that God specifically buried Moses. No man knew because no man buried him. God took him on a mountain and buried him, probably because they would worship Moses if they knew where he was. Interesting enough, you go over to the LXX, and it doesn't say he, it says they buried him. Changes from he to they. Who's the they? Most likely the they are angels. They recognize that God buried Moses precisely by burying him through angels. So then, commentary, legend, tradition, you name it, somehow it was understood that actually that during this um, burial, what happened was, is the devil came to slander Moses. And the devil said he does not deserve an honorable burial. He doesn't. He's a murderer. 
He's a, he's, he, wasn't even, he wasn't even allowed to go into the promised land. He doesn't deserve it. And Michael contended with the devil and says, no, I'm, the Lord sent me here to bury this man. I will. And so what's going on here is this. Mo, the, the archangel could have said all kinds of things against the devil. You're a liar. You're an idiot. He could have said a whole bunch of different things to him. But it says he didn't do any of that. He dared not. He said, I'm not going to go beyond what the Lord told me to do. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord told me that I'm going to bury Moses. I don't have time for you. I'm going to stay in my lane and not go and just do what I don't understand. Right? And that's what is going on there with Michael the archangel. But these people, they go out of their lane. They go around reviling the devil and saying all these crazy things that they have no business saying. They need to be more like Michael the archangel and just do what the Lord told them to do. Submit to God versus the devil, he will flee. In the very end of our passage, he describes, he attacks these people one more time. He says, Woe to them, they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Three more examples from the Bible. Cain, the original apostate. He was part of the people of God. He was actually out of worship ceremony. He was at the Lord's table, equivalent, and got mad and killed his brother. It's pretty wicked. That's them. They're within the people of God, but their hearts are not with us. They hate the people of God. They persecute them. They try to destroy them. And here, here's the 760 million from Kenneth Copeland right here. They have run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit. What is motivating them? Money. That's what motivates them. Hopefully, that does not motivate us. And as we see that, we should be big alarm bells. We should not be motivated by money, but love and by the honor and the glory of God. And finally, they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. That's their rebellious streak. They want to be on top. They want their names to be famous. They want to build their kingdom, not the Lord's. This is the false prophet. Hopefully, you can identify these false prophets today because they are still very much here. They have not gone anywhere. They have not changed their M.O., their rule book is the same. They got the same plays, and they keep playing them. And here's the crazy thing. People keep getting duped. How? It's right here. You can see them right here. Why? Because they don't remember. They don't listen. They've decided that God's word is not good enough, that they themselves know what's true. They can handle it themselves, and yet they get duped, they get fooled, and they get hurt. Let us not be like these people. Let us continue to follow the faith and contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's so relevant. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the pitfalls. You tell us how to avoid the dangers. You, you show us people. It's just amazing. People that come 2,000 years after this has been written, and they still are described so perfectly here, Lord. But help us, Lord, not to simply just point the finger, but see how all of these things can manifest in our own hearts, how we can get tired of God's word and move to philosophy to science, to whatever else, and start relying on those things to justify sin. How we can become greedy for gain. How we can be rebellious people like Korah and say, the pastor can't tell me what to do, or whatever. How we can be envious like Cain. Help us not just merely point the finger, but to be convicted by these things and help us not to become these people, but to remember that this way is not a good way. This way leads in death. We pray this in Jesus' name.